Well, hello everybody and a happy new year to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Nature's a Hoot. It's the podcast brought to you by the Hawk Conservancy Trust. As always, we are your hosts, Tom and Hannah. Yes, we are. Hello. Happy new year. This month, we'll be guiding you into the wonderful world of community conservation. And I'll be chatting to Kevin Cumming from the Langham Initiative about the community buyout of Langham Moor and what that means for the local community there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that interview, Hannah, actually. It um, sounds like a really interesting project. Um, now, community conservation, um, I've really enjoyed getting stuck into this topic, actually. There seems to be so much information out there and, and so many kind of different ways into this. Um, but essentially, what I've kind of gleaned from some of this reading um, is that essentially it's it's involving the entire community in whatever conservation projects uh, that you're you're getting into so we touched on this a little bit i think last week when we spoke about the red kite reintroduction from the trust here that it was important to get lots of people from the surrounding area involved and understanding what was happening before we could go forward with the project to ensure that it's kind of its longevity was was secured does that kind of count as community community conservation yes definitely i think um the easiest way to think about it is an approach um, to conservation that includes people so whether that's people um, who can work on the project so with citizen science for example or perhaps it also includes people who might live in the area where that conservation is going on so in my eyes I do think that community conservation is just conservation because unless you're conserving some unexplored wilderness you can't really do conservation without involving the local community and really, they need to ultimately be the decision makers um, and they need to benefit from their natural heritage. There's communities living in or surrounding um, even even unexplored wilderness. I mean, if you're taking into account indigenous people, which we obviously need to, then there are people living in surrounding um, wilderness and relying on its resources. So they're part of that ecosystem. Yeah, and probably... You know some of the best experts to work with they understand that environment probably better than anybody else and absolutely it's it always comes back to that classic thing for me um, i remember visiting here at the trust for the first time many years ago and on the back of the visitor guide there was that classic quote which is in the end we will only conserve what we love we'll only love what we understand and we only understand what we're taught and i think all of those things come together perfectly for me to understand you know how conservation really has to work it has to work from an understanding and an understanding from everybody that we're all kind of pulling in the same direction um and i think some of the most common you know maybe even just small scale conservation things that we that we come across is where communities see the benefits of the nature around them and they just naturally want to protect it not even necessarily something that's organized you know people who enjoy surfing in the sea and using the beaches they're going to be the ones you know potentially most proactive about cleaning up litter from our beaches and you know gardeners planting for bees because that helps to support the things that they love um, and communities living in an area where green spaces might be developed upon you know perfect example you're going to try and try and stop that and protect that environment because it it benefits you yeah definitely um i think um sometimes when you talk about community conservation a lot of people just automatically think about um, less developed countries or developing countries but I think it is like the examples that you've given so surfers for example picking up litter it is really important also to think about it in developed countries too 
Um, I mean, if you're thinking about, it's very different because if you're thinking about a more developing uh, developing country, so a less developed country, then the communities that you want to be involving in conservation or that should be involved in conservation and be the decision makers, they actually live there, they actually rely on those resources and they perhaps even have um, a lot of challenges with living there as well. I mean, often it's very, it can be quite controversial. You know, Westerners might be the first to say, oh, you know, we shouldn't trophy hunt or why are those people poaching? Um, why don't they understand that if they kill that it's bad? For the ecosystem but i think it's very easy to say those things when you don't have an understanding of what it's like to live alongside those species so that's why it's so important with education and um, conservation that those people are completely involved in any conservation that happens in those areas yeah we i think we get that quite a lot after the displays we have here when we talk about um poisoning with vultures obviously that is an absolutely abhorrent act and you know it's it's horrible to think about um but i think quite often people are not taking into account the situations that that people are in that are doing these things and that's not to say it's the right thing to do whatsoever it's it's dreadful and awful and and we should try and stop it wherever we can um but i think very often we see things from a pretty privileged position don't we 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 see it as once again going back to nature just being a nice thing to look at um, and it's funny, actually, since you've said that, those three examples that I wrote down, communities protecting green spaces, gardeners planting for bees, surfers clearing up litter from beaches, none of those things are like vital to people's survival, really. They're all because they're nice things. And that's because, you know, me thinking about this has come from that kind of privileged position of being able to think of the natural world and its conservation as something that is a nice thing to do because I want to continue to see it. And as we've explored before... You know pretty good for your mental health as well but actually some some place across the world they literally rely on it for survival i think a really good example that you brought up recently tom was the um mountain gorillas in rwanda yes um so the ecosystem there the gorillas were in quite bad decline um and being poached as well but with the conservation program because it had such heavy involvement of the local community and they were still allowed to use um able to use those areas for its resources to an extent it meant that it worked so much better if they if people go in you know places like africa have, have got a lot of saviors going in thinking that they know what they're doing and you can't go into a place like that without involving local people they live right there they need to be the decision makers in what happens and that's a really good example of it actually ending up benefiting the population of gorillas yeah and actually i did a little bit of extra um delving into that, that those projects with the mountain gorillas um and the international gorilla conservation program um, was established in 1991 and the idea was to protect the habitats but also kind of develop the community around those habitats so that the reliance on you know uh, persecuting those animals was not so high um, so that the reliance actually could be on them living and thriving there um, and so the idea really was to keep the animals there that would bring in sort of natural tourism that would create more jobs, more money, better standards of living for everybody else. And that's something that's really has seemed to work because census in 2003, uh, 380 gorillas. And then in 2019, last year, 459 gorillas. And that makes 
the mountain gorilla the only great ape in the world not to be in severe decline and i mean what an achievement of of community conservation involving everybody to to keep a species alive yeah absolutely a really positive a really positive um story so i've read kind of the flip side of this community conservation is also that maybe sometimes the focus of these uh, projects can be too much on people getting involved so people you know kind of having a go and dabbling in science and therefore maybe some of the science that comes from that might not be as substantial or maybe as reliable as it would be from somebody who's you know gone to university and studied these things what do you think about that um yeah i can see that point um i think with those sorts of projects so if you're thinking about the citizen science side of things i think it's really important um if you are going to use citizen science obviously that participants want to participate for a start um i don't think there's any point in trying to do any sort of community conservation if people don't want to get involved i think you should make every effort to um do it in a way that they would want to be involved but you obviously you can't force people and if you do try and get people to do something they don't want to do they're not going to do it properly um if you're thinking about citizen science so if we took the example of our um kestrel transects um the importance of these types of projects is making it accessible to people who aren't scientists so making sure that people are properly trained, making sure they have access to all the resources that they need. So whether that's um, being able to speak to someone straight away if they have a problem, making sure they have all the right equipment, they know exactly how all the equipment works and making sure they're completely ready to do that. Um, And we try really hard to do that with our Kestrel Transects. And actually this year we've been really successful, especially um, in autumn in this last season, and um, we've got 14 volunteers and Matt, our conservation biologist, he's trained all of them and they're doing really, really well. And something that's worked really nicely is that we have an open line of communications with them. So both me and Matt are on um, a WhatsApp group with them. So if they ever have any problems, they can just WhatsApp us and we can help them. Um, and also it sort of increases morale as well because it sort of creates a team environment and they feel like they're really participating. Yeah, kind of contributing directly to the conservation work. That's, is that is that still open? Like, how did those people get involved with that? And can people still get involved? Yeah, people can definitely still get involved. It will be for next year now. Um, so autumn, the season's almost finished. We've done really well. We've got we've done I think seventy seven transects so far. There'll be a few more. I'm sure Matt will try to squeeze some in right up until Christmas Day. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, if people want to get involved, the way to get involved is to email us um, either on info at hawkconservancy.org uh, or conservation at hawkconservancy.org. But you can also look on our website underneath um, volunteering. There's lots of information on there about um, doing the Kestrel Transects as well. Yeah, and we will be recruiting more volunteers for starting in January um, and then again starting next um, autumn which is around August time and from my understanding just trying to get an idea of what those volunteers might be expected to do Transex is essentially walking set routes isn't it and, and spotting uh, kestrels in this case how many kestrels you might see along that set route yeah absolutely so it's um, it's really for people who are birders um, you need to be quite confident 
you need to be interested in what you're doing um and preferably be a birder we need some people who are good at identifying birds of prey good at spotting birds of prey um but beyond that you don't need any sort of scientific background at all you just need to be able to walk for about 10 kilometers um it's quite a long walk so you need to be fairly fit um yeah and so you walk a set route and you record all of the birds of prey that you see and we provide all the equipment um gps rangefinder um to allow the people to do that so it would be perfect for somebody who is in any case going out for lovely long walks and spotting wild birds of prey and and they're really confident in in what they're seeing yeah exactly something that i think is really important um in uk conservation especially is working with local communities but especially with landowners and um farmers which is something that we do so obviously matt's got a huge network of uh, landowners farmers and organizations that he works with that he where he puts nest boxes on on their land um he also works with farmers as part of a thing called farmer clusters um where he is available for advice or expertise that they might need um to uh, benefit wildlife on their on their land so whether that's giving advice on how to increase populations of small mammals which might help um, kestrels or barn owls as their prey um, or even just giving advice on how to sort of make you know how to make it more wildlife friendly generally whether that's leaving the borders of farms wild or what time of year to trim hedges things like that i mean obviously farmers have a massive amount of knowledge in this area as well so it's really important that we can sort of um, pull that knowledge and matt helps them to effectively benefit wildlife but also benefit their production that's brilliant so if somebody was listening to this and thinking well i've got a bit of land and you know i'd quite like to make it uh, more sustainable or better for birds of prey then they could just they could send us an email give us a call and, and we could help them through that yeah so if if it's within our study area i mean matt knows a lot of people so i'd be surprised if there's many people he's not already in contact with in our study area <laughs> um but if it's beyond our study area the best way to get involved is to look at farmer clusters so just google farmer clusters um if you're a farmer or a landowner and you'd like to get involved with helping to benefit wildlife on your land then it's a great way to do that and again building another community isn't it we're all farmers kind of working together to try and do the same job that's brilliant and equally our overseas work that we do kind of includes working with communities as well for to make them work doesn't it um yeah so working in um south asia in pakistan so our work there um we work a lot with livestock farmers and livestock owners so the problem for vultures in pakistan as a lot of our followers will know um is the use of a drug called diclofenac and related drugs as well um that are actually poisonous to vultures so the way that they get poisoned is they if they eat the carcasses of um cows that have been treated with diclofenac which is a veterinary drug for lameness if they then eat carcasses that have been treated with that drug or any related drugs it's highly poisonous to vultures and will kill them Um, and this was a huge problem in um, Asia in the 90s there was a massive decline of vultures there so one of the projects we work on there is um, creating vulture safe zones which are areas which are kept safe from those drugs and to do this, we work with the local 
um, communities. So we go into local communities along with WWF Pakistan. They actually do the work on the ground. So they go into um, communities, talk to livestock farmers, show them uh, drugs that they can use that are safe for vultures. They also raise awareness about diclofenac and other other vulture unsafe drugs. Um, and they will provide um, vaccination camps, which so they'll help their um, they'll help livestock owners with looking after their cows. And then they also raise awareness generally in the communities um, about the plight of vultures and vulture conservation and why they're important to the ecosystem. So that's a really good example of us working on community conservation. Is diclofenac still an issue for vultures in South Asia? Diclofenac is still an issue in some places. Um, it has been banned in a few countries, but it is it was stockpiled so it is still used in some areas. Um, we have one vulture safe zone in Pakistan, which is fairly safe from diclofenac, but it, there are other drugs um, like ketoprofen and acyclofenac, which is actually just diclofenac wrapped up in a different way. It actually metabolizes into diclofenac. Um, so those are also unsafe. So those ones we need to deal with as well. Um, and then there's also human diclofenac, which is still used. Um, yeah, and then we have another area in northern Pakistan where we have we are wanting to establish a new vulture safe zone, and that area still is using a lot of diclofenac. So, Hannah, coming a little closer to home, um, actually to Scotland, you spoke to your friend Kevin, didn't you, over the last couple of weeks to see what he's been getting up to with some community conservation projects up there? Yes, I did. Um, so Kevin and I went to university together. We did our master's together um, and he's doing fantastically well in the world of conservation. Um, so he was a project leader on the Langham Initiative um, and part of the Langham Community Buyout. Um, which is a really interesting project. So we can listen to the interview now to hear more from Kevin. Hi, everyone. So I am here with Kevin Cumming from the Langham Initiative, and he was the project leader on the Langham Moor Community Buyout. So welcome, Kevin. Hello. Hi, Hannah. Lovely to be here with you. Yeah, great Hi. to have you here. So to give you a bit of background, Kevin and I actually went to university together. We did our masters together um but our, our courses were slightly different so i did wildlife biology and conservation masters and what was yours kevin uh, mine was conservation and management of protected areas okay. yeah which i now think that i now think they've discontinued so um we'll give you a bit of background into to, to what that degree was like oh no no it was a great degree <laughs> we both did really well <laughs> Okay, so um, tell me a bit about the Langham Initiative and what they do. Yeah, so the Langham Initiative um, are one of South of Scotland's oldest community development trusts. It's been going for about 25 years um, and it was originally set up to address the economic downturn in Langham. Uh, Langham's um, history has been in textile manufacture and as that industry has gradually disappeared, um, there was a need to try and, and uh, address that and uh, the initiative was set up. Um, over the last 10 years, it has delivered a number of environmental education projects locally. 
Um, I, but it also does a number of other projects. It, it runs the tourist information, it does um, small scale textile projects and things like that. Um, so it's a charity and, and yeah, it just tries to, to help in the local community as best it can. So the Langhamore Community Buyout, what was your role in that and um, what was special about it? Yeah, it's one of those things where you go, now, where to start? Um, so Langham Moor is probably a site that a lot of people will, will have heard of before. It's been the site of two high-profile scientific studies looking at driven grouse um, shooting and, and um, the relationship with birds of prey. Um, the sort of second of those studies, the Langham Moor Demonstration Project, uh, concluded um, early in about 2018 um, with lots of really good science that came out of it. Um, lots of different interpretations of that science, um, but one of the the main outcomes that was that came from that is that there wasn't the economics behind re-establishing Langham Moor as a driven grouse moor, um, and, and that may have been something that prompted the current landowner, Buclue Estates, um, to decide to sell uh, the the area of Langham Moor and some of the other assets around it. Um, so so the, the land itself has a huge cultural connection locally. Um, that there's part of it that's common land. Um, there, there's people who go up there and spend a lot of time walking. There's bird watching. There, there's just this really strong connection to it locally. Uh, and when the announcement to sell it came up, there was a number of members of the community approached the initiative to ask if there's anything that we could do um, to try and take it forward in a way that would benefit both the community and the wildlife that lives there. Um, and, and that's where the thought of a community buyout kind of started to germinate from. Um, and I was, you know, in, I was already in position at the Langham Initiative at the time. Um, and, and I've got a sort of background in rural estate management and the, uh, yeah, they were kind of, it seemed to fit quite well at the time that, that I would maybe have a, start to have a look at it. So, so we developed a, a community voluntary working group um, of community members with myself sort of leading it as the, the Langham Initiative's employee in it. Uh, and yeah, we started to investigate what the options would be for community ownership of at least part of the moor. Sounds really exciting um, and really interesting getting the community like properly involved in conservation. So what... Um, for some of our followers because obviously a lot of our followers are um down south in england i mean we do have followers all over the uk and even abroad but just for some context what does langham look like what's the what are the habitats like? you mentioned driven grouse shooting you, it used to be used for driven grouse shooting but what sort of habitats does it have and species and things like that that are special yeah, so um, so Langham itself is is nestled in a valley just below uh, Langham Moor in the Ewes Valley, and um, it's a very industrial looking town. And what you've got overlooking it is this really sort of nice hillside that has a monument overlooking the town, um, and there's, there's a hill road that goes up to it. And as you approach the the sort of brow of the hill, you can look out over what is basically a, a very large area of of heather moorland. Um, and that's your sort of first impression when you get over the brow of the hill, you get this expanse of moorland in front of you. Um, but as you go down into it, you start to see that there's actually a really interesting um, start of a mosaic of habitats there. And that's one of the really exciting bits about this bit of land. Um, there's some remnant of, of ancient woodland on the site along the, the river valleys, the Tarish River Valley. Um, 
and and as the, some of the sheep's um, pre grazing pressure has been removed over the years from it, that that ancient um, ancient woodland has started to regenerate a little bit, and you can start to see the sort of pioneer birch coming up the hillsides now, um, and you can and, and you can really get a sense of what that landscape might have looked like. Um, previously, so so part of the ambition of of the the community ownership and the creation of the Taras Valley Nature Reserve here is to embrace that that mosaic of habitats. Um, you've also got some some hill ground that is still open for grazing, so probably unimproved grassland you might describe it as. Um, and what we're proposing is that we'll plant a native woodland along upon some of that as well. So what you'll then start to see is on a hill, one of the valley hillsides is a new native woodland that kind of flows into the river valley into the, the remnant of the ancient woodland with the, the river habitat running through the middle. And up the other side is that the ancient woodland starts to plateau into the open hilltop. And you've then gone into a sort of more scrubby, uh, montane scrub type habitat. Um, and the, the hope is that you start to see um, how these different habitats can blend into each other. And now you can see the marginal species like black grouse uh, mm. prosper on there, um, as well as providing um, continued suitable habitat for red grouse, for hen harriers, for merlin, all, all the sort of species that we see there presently. Lovely. I, I um, remember coming up and you took us around for a drive around. I think I remember going through the river valley and seeing that's the remnants of the ancient uh, woodland there. It was really wonderful. Um, so what sort of species you said about for birds of prey in particular it's quite good habitat yeah i mean i'm, I'm somebody who who loves wildlife watching um you know I, I do love to go and spend time doing that and and i've been around a lot of places and across the uk and you know i'm not from langham originally i've been here for about two and a half years now um and for me personally it's the best place i've ever been on the mainland uk for watching birds of prey in wow. particular uh, it's incredible and you know this year in particular with with lockdown we weren't you know we've, we've been trying to bring people to see birds of prey here for a couple of years now um, and we obviously couldn't bring people this year um, and we had a really high vol count on the moor this year which okay. has a massive impact on predators and, and bird of prey success um, and when you went out in the evening maybe about half past five six o'clock i've been stood up there this year and had four or five short-eared owls all hunting together as well as four or five hen harriers hunting wow. all in the same day. um and then you might have a red grouse get up and shoot across yeah sounds incredible <laughs> sounds amazing i think i want to come and visit again i think maybe for some research i need to come and visit again <laughs> Um, I so, think, I think, well, so I was just going to say, I think the last one you did come, I think it was in the winter as well. Yeah. Um, so, so it was, um, yeah, I think, I think you, you braved it at, more, at the, the time where you can then get what the hardship of these species have to live through. Um, okay, so now that the buyout, the community buyout has been successful, what does the future hold for the more? And why is it so important for the community to be involved in this? Yeah, so the, the position we're, we're in at the moment is that we had a deadline of the, th the 31st of October to, to raise the, the funds we needed for a purchase to be completed. And we had two options, an option A, which was sort of 10,500 acres, and option B, which was about 5,200 acres. Um, and we, we by the 31st of October, we reached that deadline for the option B. Um, so where we are at the moment is that, that we're now doing the actual mechanisms of a purchase. So that'll take several months. Um, for, for that to happen. Um, but I think the, the important part of this has been showing that a rural community um, has the ambition 
and, and the drive to look at not only the importance of conserving um, habitats and improving them um, for our natural world, for climate change, for all those sort of things, but also seeing it as a way of the economic recovery of the town and it being important towards that as well. So I think that's one of the main reasons for community involvement being important in, in conservation. Um, the reality is that conservation in, in the UK and across the world requires, at the moment, an economic benefit to come from it as well. I think yeah. that's a really important part of it. Yeah. And how will the community continue to be involved in future? So the, so the way it kind of is set up at the moment is the Lightning Initiative is a community-run organisation. So, so we have a board um, of 10 community members. It's a voluntary board, um, as well as our, our membership being made up of members of the community. Okay. Um, so, so the Langham Initiative itself that, that take that take um, the, the project forward, um, and for community ownership in Scotland, I know it's slightly different with the the land reform um, in Scotland being different down to down in England. But for community ownership, you require a community organisation to take these sort of things forward, which the Langham Initiative is. Um, well, we'll also be looking at um, sort of steering groups locally for yeah. bringing there's a wide range of expertise already locally, which is great, and you want to be able to tap into that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we'll be looking at that as well. But we also realise that communities don't always have all the expertise that are that are required. Um, so we'll also be looking at um, an expert steering group um, of the, the sort of different um, ENGOs we've been working with throughout the pro the process. Um, and, and, and we'll also be bringing in staff as well to help with that. So, so that, that's kind of how it'll kind of work um, going forward. Um, I think one of the, the important things that we always wanted to make sure was, was well known about this from the start is that community regeneration is a big part of it. Mm. Um, and the way that we've kind of looked at doing that is the vast, vast majority of the land will become the Taras Valley Nature Reserve. Um, but we have also included um, some additional assets in the purchase as well. So there's some residential property, there's a little bit of commercial forestry, um, and then there is some uh, land that's very close to the town that has the potential for sort of modern business units or small-scale housing. And they're both things that are also back, uh, sort of sadly lacking in Langham. Um, yeah. that, that sort of structure hasn't been put in place. Um, so what we're trying to demonstrate here is that if you can find a balance between sustainable development and conservation, there is a way that that can be done and move forward and, and almost hopefully provide a blueprint for other communities to look at how they could do that as well. That was my next question. I was just going to say that it's, it sounds really good because it could be like a blueprint for other communities, other areas or estates to sort of take on a similar approach. Um, and I think it's brilliant that it obviously t is taking into account the economical value of the land and using it in the best way possible that is uh, beneficial for conservation, beneficial for wildlife, but in, very importantly, beneficial for the community. And like you said, building up the community as well, because that's something that's very important. And you can't, you can't really go into doing a huge conservation project without taking into account the local people and people who are living there. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about it. I hope it does um, work out and come and sort of, progress in that way that it does become a blueprint for other organizations to follow that'd be brilliant yeah well, yeah i guess i guess we hope so and i, I would say like that one of the things we're also careful about talking about is that it'll take time um, yeah so, so 
it's, it's not something where you solve all the problems in a community overnight and you of don't course. solve all the, the conservation problems or the land use disputes and discussions overnight. Um, it'll take time and it'll be hard work. But at the end of the day, I guess most things that are hard work are, are worth it. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's that's kind of where we'll go. So, so yeah, the, the hope is it can. And, and that's the ambition of the project. Sounds brilliant. So um, you said about the buyout that it's half of about half of the more that's been purchased in the buyout now and obviously that's purchase is going through now um are there plans in the future or plans going forward to buy the other half of the more so langamoor itself extends to about twenty-five thousand acres i see it's a massive massive area um at the moment the community are looking to purchase the five thousand two hundred acres yeah um, part of that is made up of langamoor okay uh, the remaining 5,300 that the community have interest in at the moment is all part of Langamoor. And, okay. and yeah, we, we, we retain our interest in that and discussions with the current landowner are ongoing. Okay, well, that it sounds really interesting. I'm really excited about it. I bet you are as well. Um, can I ask you a few questions about yourself just so that our listeners can get to know you a bit better? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so I mentioned that we went to university together. We did our master's together. But... Is that how you got into conservation? Because <laughs> um, you do know me, I think I feel it's almost like a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so so um, I, I also like so so Hannah. I know you sent me a couple of notes beforehand for us to look over, and I did like your your term of the slightly late bloomer. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a totally fair comment. So so obviously my my career path that I thought I was going to take was in professional sports. Um, I was a, a I was a full time professional footballer with Dundee uh, Dundee Football Club for three years from when I left school at sixteen and that career path just didn't work for me for whatever reason it didn't didn't work out that way um, and and it then becomes really difficult to know what you're going to do with your life when you've been set on a career and um, you start to think of the other when you've done a, a career that was a hobby and a passion before um, it's really hard to think that your life is going to be doing something that isn't that. Yeah. And my other sort of passions and, and hobbies have, have been all outdoors. They've been, you know, as, as, a, as a young family with, with my mum and dad, we always went hill walking regularly. Um, you know, we, we, we watched nature documentaries. We got out and about and saw wildlife. So, so that was kind of what we're, where I ended up going to with it was that, well, that's my other passion. So I'd like to try and see what the careers are that, that you can have with that. And that started just a, a warren of, of a career path that's gone through so many <laughs> different looks. I know uh, it fits quite in well in with, with, um, with what yourself and Tom do a little bit, the Hog Conservancy with, with myself having done some display falconry in the past. Um, I've flown, flown birds of prey commercially as well. Um, you know, from, from that to working as an animal keeper, um, you know, looking after wolves in captivity and, um, you know, yeah, go, go, just going around the houses. So that's kind of where, where I came at it from as a passion side of it. Um, and it has been a little bit later for me, but, you know, I just, I feel it's such an important area to be working in. And, and I feel really privileged actually to be, to be able to have managed to get, to be able to do it at the, yeah. this sort of scale, you know. Yeah, you you definitely have. You've gone you've gone in um, full steam ahead and <laughs> done really well. And I'm it's really great to see you like doing something you're obviously so passionate about. Um, is there any advice that you would give um, to a young person or maybe someone who's also a bit of a later bloomer 
who wants to get either involved in conservation or work in conservation or just to get involved in conservation in their community yeah absolutely i mean i think for um the age side of it particularly probably doesn't really matter i think now it's becoming less and less important i think um but if you are a young person and you have a passion for it then i think follow that that passion would be the biggest bit of advice um i would say i've benefited from having worked in and, and had a life outside of conservation and outside of that as well because yeah. you start to get a decent understanding Understanding of, of the other point of views um, and the, and the other the other things that people are concerned about, um, and you can kind of let that inform your thinking when you're trying to think about about conservation subjects and, and issues. Um, so so I think have as broad a horizon as you can, um, experience as much as you can, um, look for opportunities. Don't look, don't let them look for you because they'll not yeah. find you. So, so hunt them out and and don't be shy. That's it. Approach people, ask people. It is all about um, knocking on doors, isn't it? I, I found it that definitely in my career that you do, you have to almost bug people. If you really want to get involved, then sometimes it does just take that knocking on doors and saying, look, I'm here. I want to do this. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know, and I before I mean uh, I think you know this anyway, but before I was able to get on the master's degree, I had to do a year's voluntary work. They wouldn't let me on before yeah. that, um, and I got loads of knockbacks before I actually found someone who just went, yeah, fair enough, come along. Uh, and that was, you know, I'll, I'll never forget the people that they gave me that first step. Um, so that that was a really important thing. Um, and then I would say for for anyone who wants to to tr to be involved in it in the modern era where we're talking about climate change, where we're talking about having to move quickly, where we're talking about having to to change how we think about how we we treat our natural environment. Is don't wait around for people to do it um, as well. And if somebody has sent you it can't be done or that's never been done, that doesn't mean it won't be done in future. And 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 have a go at it. I mean there yeah. has never been a community buyout in the south of Scotland of this scale. It's never happened. Um, and loads of people told us we couldn't do it. And then we were given millions of pounds to raise in a few months and we were told we couldn't do that. Um, and, and we did through the, you know, the generosity of the public and major funders. So don't feel like you, you, you don't have the answer. Just, just go for it and see what you can do. Brilliant advice. Okay, so last couple of questions. Just um, silly little things, really. Where's your sort of go-to place to spend time in nature? Where do you go to rejuvenate? Because of the sort of work that was required in the last 18 months, my actual time of getting to go outside has been reduced so much um, over that, that period, which has been quite hard. And, and days yeah. where, where the bio was, was really tough, um, I would wait at the end of the day and then go and spend a couple hours up on Langamoor. And like I said earlier, uh, when you would see all those birds of prey going around and hunting and it was quiet and you could just watch that. I mean, that, that was really rejuvenating and it gives you that sort of refocuses you on why you're doing what you're doing. Um, yeah. But generally, I'm one of these people that I, I really like to experience new places um, and, I, and I love to experience new new things. Um, I know you spent time in Tanzania yourself and my, my wife and I were lucky enough to get to go a couple of years ago and that was just a, an incredible experience that we'll maybe never repeat again in our lives but to be able to see something that was a totally different landscape with, with different evolution going on with different wildlife I think anywhere where I go and I get to sit for a little while and just get a chance to watch uh, is what I love ab about it. And, and I would say that it's been one of those things that we don't talk about enough, but it helps me with mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I find it a great way to de-stress 
Um, and and I get I get a, a thrill out of seeing wildlife, so I, I don't mind where it is. I just yeah. you know I feel whenever I do. And is there anything that's on your bucket list that you haven't seen yet? I've not seen wolves in the wild, so oh. so wolves in the wild is is my 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 big one. And um, I had a couple that, that when we did visit Tanzania, I was able to to um, take off. And one of those was I'm not sure what the, what they're being called now. Is it painted wolves they're being called now? Oh yeah, well I still call them wild dogs. Yeah, so that was one for me, and we did get to see them when we were there. And then I had a really weird one that was just kind of for me, um, which was Kirk Stick. Oh okay. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the reason was that I remember going to Edinburgh Zoo when I was really, really young. And they had this tiny little antelope in with flamingos at right. Edinburgh Zoo. And I just thought, it was out of place. And it looked so weird that it was stuck in there on its own. That it's, a, it's an animal that's stuck with me for all these years. And we went to Tanzania and I actually got to see it where it belongs in its natural habitat. Um, and, and that was something that just brought me a sort of really internal sort of happiness and smile when I saw it there. It was, it was really nice. So, oh, brilliant. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get anyone else that we interview that's going to say that they had a dick dick on their bucket list. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I tend to do everything a little bit differently. So, <laughs> yeah. Kevin, it's been great to chat to you. I'm really pleased that you could come on the podcast. Um, and congratulations um for the buyout and all your hard work obviously paid off um, but yeah it's been brilliant to have you on so thank you so much for coming on no thank you very much for having me and and well done to you and tom for doing a great job on the, the podcast so far and i'll continue to be eagerly listening as the as the episodes come out so thank oh. you Thanks, Hannah. It's fantastic to hear from Kevin and all the things he's been getting up to with the projects up there in Scotland. Uh, definitely somewhere I'd like to go and visit at some point. It sounds sounds absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's nice to hear he's a bit of a fan of the show as well. Um, he's been listening in, which is, which is even better. So this month, it was my turn to find a big story. And uh, flicking through social media, I've repeatedly seen a video of a animal overpass so you might have seen this as well, but um, lots of animals using uh, a safe bridge, essentially, that's built specifically with wildlife in mind in order to try to stop animal collisions on busy highways. Uh, this particular one in Utah, it's been doing the rounds on, on social media. And essentially it's built up of three and a half miles of fencing to kind of guide all of the animals towards the bridge. And it was finished in 2018 uh, in order to allow those animals to safely cross. Um, now, in the two years, Hannah, building up to uh, the completion of this uh, animal crossing, for want of a, a better term, uh, there are 106 collisions with animals. So obviously that has a big impact on the wildlife themselves, but also looking through a, a human lens, obviously massive danger for, for human beings as well. So there was kind of a, a bit of a playoff between trying to protect the animals, but also trying to protect um, human beings as well. Now, uh, there are some uh, preliminary evidence since it was built in 2018 to suggest that the reductions of collisions can be anything between 85 and 95% by using those crossings. Once the animals kind of get used to the idea of, you know, this is the safe place to be and they're kind of using those guiding fences um, to push them from, from A to B, they, they seem to work. Have you come across these? 
I haven't ever seen one, but I would like to because they do sound really interesting. Yeah, I, um, I have seen I have seen the video you're talking about, and also saw one last year, which was actually an underpass underneath the highway, which was also great. And they had um, a camera on it to show all the different animals going past, and it was such it was brilliant to watch. Um, and one thing I will say is yes, I think absolutely. I mean, you can see by the numbers you said that reductions of up to ninety five percent. Um, with using these crossings that's amazing but also it's so great for uh, communications about wildlife because it's it shows something that people can actually really relate to you know people see carcasses on the road all the time you know animals that have been hit by traffic and for them to then see if we put this thing in I mean I don't know the cost implications but if we put this thing in to help the animals cross the road you won't see as many dead animals on the road and it's decreasing the risk for people, like you said. I think it's great. Yeah, it is a kind of a, a way that you can see the direct impact of human development, isn't it? You can definitely see, yeah. oh my goodness, there's an animal that's been that's been hit there. I mean, yeah. sadly, it always seems, for me, it always seems to be, well, pheasants for one thing. Um, if you live anywhere rurally, yeah. it seems to always be pheasants. Um, but also badgers seem to get hit quite a lot, I find. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly something that, that surely must help. Um, I think it's really good. And I think just for people to see the vid- a video of it is a really good uh, way of them seeing, you know, how much wildlife there is, because it would a lot of the time be wildlife that they would only see maybe hit on the road or they wouldn't probably see it crossing or they wouldn't might not see it next to the road but if you're showing them a video it's really nice for them to see what might actually be in that area Mm, um, in a really good way to communicate about the conservation of those species it's interesting actually when you said that you've seen uh, things about underpasses as well as overpasses Um, and actually there is quite a lot of research and science that goes into understanding that as well so knowing the local area knowing the ecology knowing the animals that live within that ecosystem will all be factors to consider when knowing what sort of um, what sort of crossing that you'll build. So um, I've got here that um, grizzly bears, elk, deer, and moose prefer prefer big structures that are open. So a crossing just like this, uh, and then things like cougars, black bears. This is obviously all um, uh, American animals because of this this particular study that we we came across. They prefer things more constricted, less light, and more cover for them mm. to to use. So it it does take uh, a bit of research first to make it work. Yeah. Um, but we have got a couple here in the UK. We don't have very many. Um, have, have we got a red squirrel one? Oh, we might do. I don't know. That I didn't come. That didn't come up in my. I life. might have made this up, but I think there might be some in. Maybe not in this country. Maybe it was somewhere else. Um, where red squirrels can cross over roads, or maybe it's in uh, West Wales where they're on that island. Oh yes, yeah, I know what you Anglesey. mean. Yeah. Well, the, what what came up as kind of the most celebrated successful one is on the A21 at Scotney Castle in Kent, apparently, which was completed okay. in 2005. Um, and it was actually originally to reduce the impact on the landscape and apparently was soon being used by door mice, which have got oh. to be like the cutest animals in the world, haven't they? That's nice. <laughs> and now it's time for our top tip. This month, it's all about making sure that wildlife can still access water, even in those freezing temperatures. 
If you have a pond and it freezes over, make sure you put a hole in the ice. A buildup of gases in the water of a frozen pond can be harmful to the creatures that call it home, especially the hibernating frogs at the bottom. The best way to make a hole is by placing a pan of hot water on the ice to melt it. Don't smash the ice or tip boiling water into the pond as this can be harmful or even fatal to the wildlife below. Water is a vital lifeline when the cold hits, so this little act goes a long way to helping lots of wildlife through some of the toughest days of the year. Now I'm afraid that's it for this month's edition of Nature's A Hoot, but thank you so much for joining us. Remember we always add a bit of extra information about all the things we've discussed to our blog and that accompanies each episode of Nature's A Hoot. You can find our blog along with lots of other information about who we are and what we do on our website hawk-conservancy.org or find us on social media at hawkconservancy. Sadly, this was the last in the current series of our podcast and Nature's a Hoot will be taking a little break for February. In the meantime, make sure you get out and about in nature as much as you possibly can and Hannah and I will welcome you back on the 1st of March. Bye! Goodbye.